Welcome to episode six of Redboard Rewind. My special guest today is Ed DeRosa. Today we cover Kofefi's one in the dogwood, where does she fit as a Breeders' Cup contender, and the 17,000 early pick five Sunday at Churchill Downs where there were zero favorites who won in the sequence. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Ed DeRosa. Ed, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. I usually listen to you on Thursday nights with uh, Anthony Stabile on the call-in show, so this is a really big uh, <laughs> big thing for me, so I appreciate you taking the time to spend with us. My pleasure. Uh, always nice to turn the tables and be the one calling in. So, yeah, looking forward to rewinding. And unfortunately, it was not a profitable weekend for me, but as always, something to learn in this game. As a public handicapper, you're one of the very few people who I see on social media, Twitter, pretty much, that you always post, you know, how you're doing overall in the wagering. What made you decide to do that, to be so public with it? I've been keeping track for a while. I I would definitely say one of my prized possessions is my wagering diary, which goes back to the beginning of 2010. Made a resolution that I was going to keep track of my wagers for better or worse. And have, have stuck through it now with what is the 10th year. And it, it's been sobering uh, as it has been illuminating. Uh, I am not a winning horse player long term. Certainly have had pockets of excitement and, you know, times when I thought maybe the tables have turned and uh, just haven't kept the momentum going. The reason I, I started it is I wanted to get a handle on what was, you know, exactly how much I was winning and losing. Um, you know, making sure things didn't get out of control. So that's one of the benefits is you just get a handle on your losses and see it in black and white, which I think is important, you know, for those who kid themselves and think they're a winning player. uh, It's important to see that either a you are, or if you're not know, you know, where the money's going. And then number two, in terms of actually sharing it, you know, my thought was if I ever am a winning horse player, um, you know, if I beat the game, start beating the game, consistently beat the game, I want to have that background where people know that, you know, I share the good, the bad and the ugly. And if I just pop in one year and say, look at me, I'm a winning player. That's not the right way to do it. Um, you know, I want horse players to know that I'm one of them. Uh, I'm learning with them. I take it seriously. Yes, I'm an employee of racing of Churchill Downs, but I really put a lot into the craft. And by sharing these type of stats, uh, good or bad, I I just think it adds an authenticity to my marketing efforts. For me, a lot of my friends barely even know what the racetrack is, let alone go to it. So a lot of people who, when I tell them what I do for a living, you know, whether it's the podcast or that I'm, you know, I help with the bet squad at Saratoga, they go, so are you winning player? Like, what are your stats like? And I'm just, and I'm just like, well, I know I'm not a winning player yet. And I definitely have to do a little bit better with my record keeping, but it's just, everyone wants to know immediately if you're a winner or not. And it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you're a winner or not, but it also helps that you can teach people, you know, different concepts and like, you know, why a class dropper is good in this race compared to why it's bad in this race and stuff like that. 
Yeah, the the explanation certainly is is really important. And you're right when, you know, people I work at Churchill Downs for Churchill Downs or, you know, get to go to the racetrack for my job, they they assume you're you're a winner. And, you know, I, I know enough about player habits, uh, you know, as an employee of, of Twin Spires that, uh, you know, I, I, I can proudly say that I am definitely better than most, um, you know, so there's some pride in that. But that that's, you know, at the end of the day, not good enough for me. I, I want to be a, a profitable horse player. Uh, and there's definitely a, a lot of tweaks to be made. And uh, not only in the handicapping process, but in the wagering process. I mean, it, it blew me away. You know, the first few years I was doing this for more money than in, in previous years where my handle was increasing because I was getting better. So I was churning more the, you know, type like show bets, you know, something you don't really think you play a lot of. And as a percentage of my play, it, you know, it's, it, it isn't a lot. But at the same time, that's capital that I'm just burning. I mean, my ROI is just never good. And it's like I, I don't even know why I'm making those bets if they're uh-huh. asking plays or what. But seeing it in black and white at, you know, month to month. And at the end of the year, uh, I mean, I've just eliminated them from my play completely with the obvious exception that most horse players are aware of with the bridge jumping, but across the board bets, wind show show only uh, I've eliminated because I mean, the numbers were just clear that, you know, that my handicapping process does not yield anywhere close to positive results in that pool. It's funny you say that because one of my favorite bets I made was something that uh, Joe Christofek taught, and it's the latter bet, two to win, four to place, eight to show. Or as he did, I think it was like five, 10, and 20. And for me, I only try and play those horses that are above 10 to one, usually to try and make that profitable. But I mean, I hit a couple at Saratoga that I, it's $14 bet for me. And even if they showed, it would come back as like 36. Now, if you do those over time, you know, that only takes like, it was would be one and a half times and I'm already in the negative. But with show betting, I think that some people, they just, they it's taboo almost. They don't want to do it. And to me, if you have, like you said, proper record keeping and you are a positive player with show bets, there's no reason you shouldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, overall, show bets, I mean, you're you're paying the takeout and you're paying break, breakage, basically, on three Very horses. true. Um, so you you are up against it, but you know, there are opportunities, but if you don't like a favorite who has 90% of the show pool, uh, that absolutely needs to be in your toolkit. I mean, you, you should be prepared to use any wager if you know, the, the pool is inefficient. Uh, Joe and I definitely have a fundamental disagreement on, on ladder bets. I, I think they are not the, the appropriate way to express your opinion. Uh, I do understand him and you being on the bet squad, this would apply too. I definitely understand, you know, if you're a once a year or very casual player, I totally get it from the standpoint of, Hey, here's a way, you know, you're only going to make six bets today. This is a way that, you know, certain horses, even if they finish third, you can have a fun day, get some money back. I get it. I think, in racing, we don't do a great job of selling the, the gambling as an entertainment aspect. And I certainly see where show bets or the ladder bet or things like that, exacta boxes come into play. But o- overall, uh, I, I do find them pretty inefficient. And I forget the name of the book, but a horse player in Chicago um, basically kept a diary, you know, trying to 
I don't know if he was really trying to be a pro or it's just a book idea, but um, the, the, the stats definitely bore out that if you like a horse, just bet him to win. I think that book is called Horse Players. I think I have it on my shelf right now as I look back behind me. I want to say his last name's McManus. So <laughs> anyway, but and just, you know, as I said, from a theory standpoint with place and then especially show wagering, the breakage, the the takeout, you're at the whim of, you know, other horses in the pool, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I've definitely, I mean, the, the numbers were abysmal, but even just, you know, digging into the math of it, um, just have a real hard time advocating for playing any horse in straight pools, anything to, but to win. Now with, with you being a public handicapper, like, Obviously, like if, even if you just beat the ROI as a public handicapper with your top picks, that's good. Why do you make it like that much more difficult for you by doing it <laughs> with everything well, else? Yeah. Um, now, when I uh, one thing I do is keep track of my top pick because, as you mm-hmm. said, as a public handicapper, that that's sort of the pick. People want to pick. They gravitate toward whoever's on the top line. If you, you know, sort of do a top three grid style in the newspaper, that sort of thing. I do hold, I personally hold myself up to an ROI on the top pick because I do wait for changes the day of before I publish my selections. Interesting. Um, now people in the you know, newspaper that have deadlines 48, 72 hours in advance don't have that luxury. And in their case, I, I totally get, <laughs> focusing more on, you know, pure number of winners, winning percentage, things like that. But because I have the benefit of, you know, surface changes, scratches, you know, if, if the horse I had planned to pick on top scratches, instead of scratching into a horse, I'm just making another pick. So I, I hold myself to a little higher standard in that regard, because that's a huge advantage over my contemporaries who have to make picks without that knowledge, um, you know, pace scenario gets affected, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so in, in that regard, I think ROI is ideal for, you know, top pick just two to win. And would you have come out ahead or not? As far as going the, the next step and actually publishing my wagering ROI, uh, again, you know, I, I definitely want the community to know I'm, I'm one of them, so to speak. I play, I'm trying to get better. I want to learn from them. Hopefully they can learn from me, whether it's my state, my mistakes or my triumphs. Uh, And, you know, again, ego wise, to be honest, uh, if if I have a a winning year, I want to be able to crow about it legitimately and not come off like, you know, a carpetbagger that, oh, here I am. Look at me um, when they had never heard, you know, my my results before. So it's been an uphill battle. um, But, you know, when when it happens, uh, I know it'll be extra sweet because people have shared the the negatives with me as well when you're uh, going through the you know your ledger is there any type of race or maybe a certain surface that you were like wow i thought i did good in this and it's like <laughs> it's not in there or vice versa as well i haven't noticed anything um you know surface wise or even class wise it, it definitely seems like i should stick to certain uh circuits uh my ROI in Ohio and Kentucky is, is positive and it's negative everywhere else. Um, so, you know, the, the fact that I do well with the tracks I'm familiar with, I'm from Cleveland, um, you know, and I haven't lived there in a while, but that, that style of racing is, is still familiar, even, even if, as it's improved with slots and stuff. And then of course, Kentucky knowing, 
you know, the horsemen here and and uh, just living and breathing it pretty much day in and day out clearly is an advantage and it's positive. So, okay, Ed, what are you doing wrong? Why, why are you blowing this money away? And, um, you know, unfortunately, I, I like I like to gamble and there's that sort of degen quality. And, and I think as a horse player, we have this mentality where we want to play Saratoga with our friends. We want to play you know, the big days at Gulfstream. And unfortunately, those have, have not been uh, positive experiences for me long term. And, uh, you know, just have to have to improve on the discipline. That's a huge uh, part of the game. And, you know, Pete talked about that in the column he wrote uh, for the Brisnet betting guide, uh, you know, yoga. And I, I think any horse player owes it to him or herself to recalibrate and really take stock and you know whether that's meditation or maybe you write about it or listen to podcasts and just really think about uh how you're allocating your capital and you know even as as i'm talking i'm realizing it's kind of hypocritical because i'm gonna you know play these tracks that i've shown a long-term negative because i want to be in on the action and want to play these big days but really is is a serious player i probably should just be focusing on the home tracks it totally seems that way for me, like using Naira as my main focus. Uh, everyone talks about Chad Brown and stuff and how he uh, wins everything. But I mean, if you look at it, he has $10 <laughs> winners almost every weekend. It's almost incredible. Yeah. And, and, you know, people then say, well, it's in the same race. He had a three to five who got beat. And I, I get it. I mean, it, it's, it's frustrating, but it's, or it can be frustrating. I shouldn't say blanketly. It's frustrating, but I mean, with any gambling game, and I always tell people it's funny to me because, you know, I'll put, you know, say $144 into a pick five and be out in the first leg. And, you know, not that I'm happy about that, but yeah, turn the page and another opportunity and let's get back at it. And I'll watch a football game that, you know, I put $10 on with a buddy and I'm screaming over every play and getting anxiety over, you know, missed calls and drop passes and, it's, you know, just that mindset can be different gambling game to gambling game. And, and racing, I think, takes a special constitution to really plow through. And, and your example is a great one. Like it for some, it, it's maddening, you know, when, when Chad Brown's winning all these races. But uh, it, it's also the key to success because he's in he, a he's in so many races. B, he went and he wins his share, too. I mean, we're not talking about you know, a, a Randy Prasad who's, you know, one for 85 or whatever, and you kind of just draw a line through it. Anytime Chad has something in the race, that's practically your starting point. A hundred percent. Let's switch gears real quick. And let's talk about a horse that didn't drop the ball this weekend. Kofefi winning race 10 on Saturday, the Dogwood Stakes winning buyer was 107. What do you think of the performance, Ed? Yeah, it was, it was spectacular. Uh, 107 buyer, two Ragazin, I think, two and change. I didn't see if, if there was a notation. 108 Brisnet, so pretty exemplary on, on all metrics, and rightfully so. I mean, I that, I don't always, you know, being at Churchill for every race day, I don't always go out to watch every live race, but that was appointment viewing for sure. Um, you know, I thought her winning the test over Oaks winner Serengeti Empress really signaled that she had taken even another step forward as a three-year-old and based on the workout reports, didn't sound like she had missed anything, uh, you know, shipping to and from Saratoga for trainer Brad Cox and, 
indeed, she, you know, lived up to the billing. Uh, obviously, at, at one to five, you know, what do you do with that? Um, I, I think you will find a, a, among, you know, if you look most of your guests and my colleagues, I'm probably one of the more willing people to bet a short price to win just, you know, from a pure probability standpoint, if you, if I really think a horse has an 80% chance to win and that horse is three to five, that's actually a, a fantastic bet. I mean, that's, that's as good a value as, is really you, you can find in any gambling game. Um, one to five changes that quite a bit though. I mean, then you're talking about a horse who you would need to think wins 90 plus percent of the time to be worth a bet at one to five. And, and that's a, an awfully tall hurdle to clear as it turns out after the race that she probably does win that race 90 plus percent of the time. So it, it's always hard to advocate, advocate for betting one to five because you don't get a lot of those opportunities, but you know, in the scope of a, of a gambling and, and redboard podcast, especially, am I saying I should have bet at one to five? No, but I am saying she probably lived up to that price. I mean, a hundred percent. Now, when I look at her, I was hoping that she was going to give up a good performance because I know that her next race will probably be in the Breeders' Cup. And as soon as I saw that she popped another, you know, mid one hundred buyer, she to me is a hundred percent a bet against at the Breeders' Cup. The last time she ran one hundred and seven, she bounced back down to an eighty-four and it kind of took her a couple of races to get back up there. So even if she's tra- if she's training, I just think she's going to be two to one, nine to five at Breeders' Cup. And to me, that's just too short to take on a horse that hasn't ran a couple of hundreds back to back yet. Uh, I, I do. Um, I do love that she actually breaks really well for, you know, the three year old. And I, I think that could be an advantage for her. Uh, come dancing, who, you know, figures to be one of her chief adversaries in the Breeders' Cup. Philly Mare Sprint does not always, uh, you know, break as well as you'd like and even even a long sprint so i i do see that as an advantage uh i I sort of agree with you though she's a known name from a known barn coming off a big win i see that as typically a recipe for an underlay uh but but we've seen some weird betting in this this philly and mare sprint i mean unique bella and those who who follow me on twitter know she is absolutely one of my favorite fillies in recent years but she had no business being the price she was in her Breeders' Cup Philly and Mare Sprint with just the one race off the layoff. So I'm not completely in the camp where I'm going to be go into the race being against Kofefi, especially since I have even more questions about Come Dancing, who will probably take her share of money. Uh, but I agree with you, you know, based on how it's looking, the wagering is going to shake out. She's probably going to be over bet, but. You know, in, in a race that typically gets a, a full field and a lot of different looks, I, I could still see maybe thinking she's the right key of the logicals and, you know, hook her up with some long shots that way. I think right now, early going, my pick is probably going to be Royal Charlotte in that race if she ends up going in it. I just I love the race at Saratoga. I picked her on the Woodward seminar I did with Pete that day. I think that when the way just the way she beat break even, I think the horse she needs a little bit of pace in front of her, but I think she'll be all right. Yeah, no, there's a, a lot of dangerous horses. Uh, I know the it sounds like the Presque Isle Masters horse, uh, who's at fast 
Stana, is that her name? Um, sounds I like she thinks so. Yeah, um, and that might be the sire. I, I get all these Annas mixed up now, but um, sounds like they're on the fence. But you know, that's been a a formful key race uh, as a prep. Uh, and you know, with the seven for long distance, you do get some cutbacks as well, uh, which I believe is Andy Serling's favorite angle. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those races we've seen blown up. It's, it's not, uh, it's, it's formful when there's a superstar, like we've seen with, uh, groupie Dow and, and horses of, of that caliber. Um, but when it, you know, sort of looks wide open, it, it does live up to that too. So, Fascinating race from handicapping. Uh, I, I would say of of the two that ran this weekend, I am more interested in Kofefi than Come Dancing. I would tend to agree with that as well. What do you say we get into some concepts, Ed? The pick five from Sunday, I thought it was very, very interesting. Usually within a sequence, usually you'll get one favorite. In this sequence, there were no favorites. Hmm. And I think that we have a really good chance of just even race one, like when I was cert- first started looking through the card, uh, Eulalie, I guess that's how you would say it. Yeah. I mean, when you see a horse at nine to five, then it's a turf race. And the horse, sure, she's bred a little bit for the turf, but there's no when a horse doesn't have a start at that. I mean, that's a terrible, terrible price. And I think she was also even lower than that. I believe she went off at under even money. Yeah. Yes, he did. Um, and, and I agree. Uh, and I actually pulled my my notes from that day. I was, I was on air and I, I did have her initially, um, is, is one of the logicals. And I, I demoted her cause I just felt like she was going to be over bet. And indeed at even money just was not even worth to me, you know, putting on, on the ticket. Um, you know, Brad Cox is a, is a trainer who's been very multi-surface, uh, you know, Monomoy girl debuted on turf. He's had plenty of horses. He's not shy about, you know, if they're in form and turf fits the condition book early in their career, he'll, he'll go with it and switch them back to dirt. And the fact that this one never showed up on turf, uh, and then, you know, finally did in this, um, when she was just as fast as the others, definitely to me just kind of felt like, okay, she's facing older, She's on the rail. There, there were just way too many questions at odds on. And um, I, I left her off the, my ticket, which, you know, ended up working out, uh, at least initially. So we'll get to it. Didn't work out so well later. <laughs> um, but, you know, to me, that that's absolutely the horse. If you have that many questions on and they're odds on, you're, you're just way better off in the long run chucking them completely and allowing yourself, you know, whether it's going deeper in that race or some extra combos in a race you're as unsure about. I hear way too many handicappers say, you know, well, you know, too short of a price, but I'm using anyway. And I mean, to me, why, why are you using horses you think are underlaid? So that, that was one I got right. Um, she was not worth odds on and a questionable favorite for sure. Or to go back to your point about how people just don't want to take horses at short prices. There's some people who, you know, I'm trying even like Monomoy girl, or we could use Midnight Bisu this year at some prices she's been at. And they're like, no, no, must avoid. Like, let's play against her. She's and I'm just like, she's going to win this race 99 percent of the time with three legs. And now we're going to try and play five horses in a pick five against her. I'm like, OK, I will play the double and I will make whatever, you know, thirty five dollars off it. Your pick five tickets in the tube. And people just 
favorites win every day and people just don't understand that it's okay to play favorites. You just can't play favorites nine races a day. Right. And I, I think too, you get into a situation where they will play, you know, a three to five and then double the cost of their ticket with another horse or triple mm-hmm. it or quadruple it. And that that's the situation where you need to take a stand. And, you know, maybe, maybe you think, oh, the horse should be even money and it's four to five. Well, that's close enough to me that if you want to take a stand and, and single there because you're probably getting even money in a multi-race wager, that's OK. But when you get to the point where you're sort of using a, a favorite to protect or, you know, just to survive a sequence without a strong opinion elsewhere, that's what I have a problem with. Now, if you like a 10 to one horse. You're going to single that horse and say, hey, I'm going to hit this thing if this 10 to 1 wins. Then, yeah, I get, you know, spreading a little bit and including the favorite even when you're spread. But in a situation where you just kind of don't really have a strong opinion and, you you know, you're just trying to get through leg to leg. You know, Eulalie is an example where unless you love her, you're better off chucking her completely. And then to your point about the favorites, though, as as I sort of hinted with Kofefi, yeah, not that I was betting her at 1 to 5, but. There wasn't a ticket that I, I had anyone but, but Kofefi in that late pick five. I, I mean, there's just no reason to double or triple your ticket if you if you think she's the nuts. And if you don't, that's the time to, to take a shot because, you know, you beat her. Those are the life-changing payouts. I mean, they just pay exponentially more than they should when you beat a favorite like that. But that should be your opinion. Don't, don't just do it to, to say you did it. Absolutely. And then the Peru, the winner, I mean, she was five to two on the morning line. And then you got exactly that for the race because of the overbetness on Eulalie. I mean, coming out of a couple stakes races, she had the mid eighties buyer, which was right there at the buyer par. I mean, five to two seemed like a steal. Yeah, that, that was definitely a, a solid price after the fact. And, and I uh, used her along with uh, number five. So um, was happy to, to advance pretty thin there against the favorite. And it, as you said, in retrospect, she really could have been a horse you, you leaned on. I mean, she was cl- the, the clear best in that race. Moving on to race number two, it was a 50,000, not a winner of two lifetime going one mile on the dirt the winner was the outside horse, Father G, with the uh, concept in this race being first to second start. Usually in the James Quinn books, they say they can improve 10 to 15 points usually. And I mean, went from a 67 to, I believe, an 80 buyer. I mean, so it's right there. And the favorite was another short one, my sixth sense. I didn't like the drop and just it had the right numbers, but the seven was a hundred percent could improve right up to that number as well. And you got a monster price on it. Yeah. And I used a three, seven and was disappointed in myself after the race that I picked the favorite. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, really father G was, was the play. Um, And the, the one thing I would mention in addition to, to your point about, you know, possible improvement second time out is that that Belterra race is, is kind of buried. I mean, it's, it's like mm-hmm. Finger Lakes in, in New York. Um, you know, it's just viewed as a lesser than, and I'm not here to tell you that all the horses there are on par with Churchill, but if, if the numbers stack up, you can trust that, you know, some of these, these trainers are willing to ship up there and, 
break the maiden or, you know, get a certain condition that maybe isn't available at the Kentucky tracks or Indiana grand. And, and Tommy Drury is a 20% plus trainer um, is certainly adept at spotting his horses. So I thought the horse absolutely fit. There had already been runners at Churchill who had won coming from Belterra. The horse was absolutely a tremendous overlay at the, the winning price. And I, I'm not upset that I used more than him in the pick five. You know, there were a lot of questions with it being the type of race it was, but I, I definitely wished I had that back and, and made it my top pick. Now, one thing that you had said about Belterra horses already winning at the meet, I think that's the craziest thing for me at Saratoga the last few years is that when two or three Finger Lakes horses, I, I had a Tammy Pamperini Finger Lakes horse uh, in this past Saratoga meet. If they're not winning, then it's fine. You can say it's to play against them, but it's like, oh, three Finger Lakes horses won last week. I'm still not playing Finger Lakes horses. It's like, well, now you're just like, you're not doing your homework. You're not studying enough. You don't understand right. what the track trend is. Yeah, and, and class to class matters too. Yeah, I mean, I definitely can understand, you know, a horse broke his, his maiden, you know, and a maiden, maiden claiming at Finger Lakes, and now they come into an allowance at Saratoga, and, you know, they're stretching out and it's a sprint. You know, there's there's plenty of reasons why it doesn't necessarily need to be an automatic play. But there are plenty of uh, situations, too, where there's, you know, similar variables. And the only thing different is, you know, the track code of where they're running. And you often can get, you know, a little premium on your price. And, and that was definitely the case here. I mean, was the horse the most likely winner? Nah, maybe not. But certainly was was a more likely winner than you know 10 percent or whatever the odds worked out to be so and like you said once you see it happening and these horses ship into a particular meet and are winning from another track um it, it's fair game for sure i think too and maybe one reason that the price was so big too uh declan carroll was the jockey over 21 so far as what it says on my sheets from that day a lot of people look at connections and if they see O for trainers or O for jockeys, they don't even look at the PPs and they just scratch the horse out. And yeah, I know that I know Declan's had a couple of wins this year. So I know he's not, you know, your average, you know, bug rider. He's a very, very good talented rider so far. He is. And, and that was a benefit, you know, for, cause I, I generally do shot or uh, lean in the direction of, man, this, this guy's cold. I, I'm going to, you know, go away from him until he shows mm-hmm. he can win at this level. And, um, but, but again, price is baked into that. I, I mean, you know, there's, there's people at, at, at Naira, um, that, you know, win less than 5% of the time, but if, if the numbers, you know, say they have a shot and they're going to be 30 to one, well, that that's okay. But, you know, I, I will say that there are just certain horsemen or jockeys that if they're on the favorite, that's usually a, a reason I'm looking to, to beat the favorite. So, uh, with anything in racing that I don't think, and I don't think this gets talked about enough, it, it, it does come down to price and these rules shouldn't apply, uh, across the board. They should apply based on the price. Um, now, now Declan though, I mean, he was just kind of in a cold streak. It's been a lot of parody at, at Churchill just wasn't, you know, right place, right time. And it clicked on, on uh, Sunday cause he got a, a riding double. Um, and, and well-deserved. I mean, as you said, as a bug rider, he, he puts himself in the right spots. Absolutely. Uh, moving on race three maiden claiming 30,000, six and a half on the dirt. 
The winner was over the blue as a first time starter for Brian Lynch. The buyer figure came back at 49. When I looked at this race and I saw all these different horses, I said, this might be one of the weakest races I've seen at Churchill this year. And then when the buyer came back to 49, I was stunned because if you look at Lynch's numbers, he's not really that good first time off the, uh, with first time starters. And I think they just went with the favorite mostly just because of Asmussen and Santana. Yeah, they, they did. I mean, that was definitely a default favorite. Um, and I would, you know, say this goes back to a similar approach to race one. Um, just looking at trainer intent and the type of horses these trainers, you know, really do well with and sort of point to certain races. And, and this just wasn't a, a Steve Asmussen vibe. Um, obviously he wins these type of races. You don't win as many races as he does without winning at all levels of the condition book. But again, as a favorite, there were enough questions here where it was appropriate to look elsewhere. And indeed in this race, especially, um, I actually, I picked number four and my second choice was number five, the eventual winner. Both were first time starters. Again, I, I wish I had fl- flipped them. Um, when the five actually won the race, I'll uh, my selections in race two, but the, the wheels quickly came off after I, I hit this early pick three, but, um, I was locked in on, on the favorites to be against, uh, at least in races one and three. And I think the big lesson, you know, when I went back to prepare for our discussion was just sort of looking at Eulalie, Brad Cox, just, you know, just didn't feel like a horse he had a good grip on, had a lot of confidence in. And, and same thing with Asmussen. It just didn't fit that vibe of, you know, what, what they try to do with with their barn and point horses. And again, those horses win for those guys. They're 30% trainers for a reason. They can win at any level, but it's the favorite. There were questions to ask and, you know, reasons to oppose to, to try to get lucky at, you know, some nice prices. I also ended up on the number four as my top pick in this race. I mean, when you look at it though, too, I mean, Steve's ice cold one for 20 Santana's one for 20 and just there, I didn't really see a fast work in there. A great stat for Steve that I think is incredible is that the debut made in claiming he's 24% with 42 starters. I know it's not a big sample size, but there's not many trainers that debut at made in claiming and have a over 20% win percentage. Right. And, and I would say, um, you know, a, a big thing to remember with Steve is, and, and it's, he's toned it down a little over the p- past few years, but he does have a far flung stable. Um, so those maiden claiming stats do include Remington, Louisiana, Texas, New Mexico, mm-hmm. where you're, you know, more likely where he's, I don't want to say giving up on a horse, but, you know, there's lower class animals that, you know, aren't going to be running in stakes at Churchill in New York. They're going to be there. And, and those are obviously easier spots. And he's very good at spotting uh, his, his massive stable where they can win and earn purses, et cetera. So maiden claimers aren't all equal. And when he had, as you noted, when he had one at Churchill with some slow works and a cold barn to begin with, there were, there was enough reason for pause at a short price. I think it's interesting. Like you said, like with the early pick three, I mean, if you just look through and look at the three favorites, I mean, this is such a playable sequence by just tossing the favorites and people would complain. They'd be like, oh, see, this, see, I hear people all the time, like going back to Chad Brown, like I pick him, he loses. I don't, I pick against him. He wins. I feel like that's kind of the same with Steve for Churchill sometimes too. 
No, yeah, for sure. I, I would say Brad may be more for me, which we'll, we'll get to in race four. But yeah, uh, yeah, any of these. But I mean, Roman's uh, isn't quite uh, where he was in his heyday. But, you know, that was a guy definitely had trouble just kind of figuring out. And, you know, when they're, when they're good at placing horses and know that they can use the condition book, you know, better than their colleagues, that that's what's going to happen. I, I mean, I see it as a tip of the cap to them that they can kind of fool the public. Um, so much, but you know, that it, it can be frustrating. There's no doubt about it. Well, I'm interested now about race four. So let's move on over to that one. This was a open 40,000 six furlongs on the dirt. The winning horse was bell tapestry and the winning buyer was an 85. So another slight improvement. You obviously want to talk about the number three horse curate for the, <laughs> The Brad Cox barn. Yeah, I, I thought this was the most likely winner on the day. Um, and, and I ended up not betting to win because I was live in the pick five, which uh, had, had started pretty handsomely. And he, he just wasn't good enough. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, maybe there were some opportunities for the, the rider to get clear. But I mean, that's re- really stretching considering how over the barrel I thought Curate had this race. Uh, it, it was just, it was just a bad play. Now, now all that said, you know, in, in order for me to spread a little bit and race five and race three, which I saw as more open, you know, I needed some opinions to lean on. So mm-hmm. I don't mind that, that he was one of them, but yeah, I mean, I was just wrong. And, and I would say going back to what I said about, you know, Cox and Asmussen and races one and three, the, the big question looking back was, okay, you know, this horse is in form. They're willing to risk them for 40. You know, the, the talk before the race was, oh, there's going to be, you know, a 10-way shake for this horse. So why, why were they so eager to get rid of them for a price that many thought was, was decent? And, you know, the fact that there were supposed to be these claims sort of shows that. So, you know, was that enough of a question maybe to, to talk off them? I don't know. I mean, the, the reality is I didn't love anyone else. I had no alternative. So that, you know, it's just one of those, some, sometimes you're going to be wrong. I mean, same with, with poker, you're going to bluff in the wrong spot. You're going to, you know, think, think your hands best and it's not. And, and sometimes you're just wrong. And that, that's what happened here. And I, I had no positive notations on the winner either. I just effed up the race. Now you were talking about the backstretch talk about a 10 way shake. Do you let the backstretch talk sometimes affect what you're going to do in the race? You do kind of just kind of you know, put your hands over your head and just, you know, block all that stuff out. Yeah. I mean, I found it, it sort of evens out. I mean, I mean, in this case, I was more saying that to the point of that, you know, that could have provided a backdrop for, okay, why is the barn willing to lose this horse that so many other people are, are willing to drop a claim slip on? Um, I, I would say, you know, there's some people you can trust when it comes to, you know, debut starters and things like that. Now I'll bake that into my overall opinion, but I'm never pushing my chips in just based on, you know, whispers. I think a big thing for that horse that had me kind of play against was when they went for 40 and come right back for 40. Now I know the last race that he had won was like multiple conditions. It just is interesting that they just don't move up at all. And they just kind of keep them at the 40 to me. That kind of doesn't say a good thing. Maybe it's not so much a negative, but it's kind of an in the middle thing. Whereas our winner had won for 40,000 four back 
and then was kind of, you know, bumped up to 50, then tried the optional 40, didn't run well. Then they put him up in the optional 40 to be claimed, and now he, dro- like, technically drops down to the 40. It just kind of made sense. They're like, okay, now they found, they tried to bump him up. Now they're going to go back to the level he's already done well at. And five to one just seems like a steal in this type of race when you have <laughs> such a negative effect like that with the uh, with the favorite like I did. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, kudos to you. I, like I said, I, I can't even retrofit it. Just one of those I I missed. But I mean, that that's the important thing of, of having this discussion. And in general, I think uh, racing really misses the boat and not going back and talking through, you know, sequences and, and wagering um, like the poker community does. I mean, hand, hand histories analyzed to death. And, and I, I think if you're serious about improving your racing game, what we're doing right now is, is essential to that. So um, I certainly appreciate it. Cause like I said, I mean, I, I was just wrong. So hearing, you know, the thought process of someone who not only didn't like the favorite, but also was able to, you know, find the winner. Um, I think, you know, even, even helps you when you miss the race. Why do you think that as a race community that we don't like, cause the poker community loves each other. I feel. And then there's some people where it's like red boarding is such a taboo subject where it's like, Hey, Hey, I had the winner. It's like, well, I just lost. I don't care. Like we don't like that type of red boarding. But when I've sat down with some guys from the daily Gallup, the website that I produced from, and we just talk races from Saratoga. And I mean, I'll look at the clock and we start at nine and it's 1230 at night. <laughs> And I have like two pages of notes from, you know, other guys from every race of the day. And I just upload them in the formulator just to keep an extra, like no one wants anybody else's advice unless if it's a winner. And sometimes that's not what you even need. Yeah. I I don't, I really can't figure out, you know, the the zeitgeist of of racing that just so pushes away that, that type of discussion. And I mean, unfortunately I think there's a lot of that, it's really results oriented. Um, you know, a, a good bet is a winning bet. You know, the thought that betting a horse at even money that wins is is as good as betting, you know, a horse at four to one that loses. Um, you know, when in fact the the bet at four to one is is probably a better bet. Uh, it's just the, a real lack of understanding of you know the the probability aspect of racing. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I wish I could break through because I feel like, you know, that's that's an area I understand. And I think a rising tide lifts all boats. And, you know, I think people would be better horse players and, and not lose as much. Um, you know, even me who thinks I understand it and has a really good grasp on it uh, is, is not a winning player. So I have strides to make, too. But, yeah, it, it's it's fascinating to me that poker is so welcoming you know, to the thought of criticism and, you know, being told that, you know, something is, is wrong. Um, and, and racing, it's just still sort of viewed as like this opinion game. And obviously we, we wager on our opinions, but how we do so there absolutely is a right and wrong way to do it, which actually we'll get to in race five with, uh, the crazy overbet, super terrific. Let's what let us move on to race five. Another maiden claimer, thirty thousand. The winner was Miracle Hill, ridden by Bug Boy Declan Carroll. Uh, talk a little bit about the favorite and the overbet part. 
I think this was a situation for me where I just kind of got married to thinking that this horse was going to offer value out of the pick five by now and, and actually would not have hit. Um, I did, didn't use Miracle Hill either. So more like downhill after that third race. But, <laughs> uh, you know, so he was nine to two on the morning line, which I think was, you know, second or third choice on the morning line. But really juicy price for a horse that I thought looked like the most likely winner of the race. Got a positive workout, you know, from Bruno. Um, so that was, you know, something like, all right, man, th- this thing is is rolling. Had a, a blinker adjustment. I forget if it was on or off, but it was something that I saw as a positive. And lo and behold, opens up at, I think, three to two and ends up going off at 11 to 10. And, you know, by, by then my money was in anyway with, you know, the busted multi-race wagers. So, um, thankfully avoided, you know, any more bleeding, but I, I still picked him. you know, I stuck with them talking about the race, but th- the reality is, is he, he wasn't nine to two anymore. That value that I thought would be there, you know, maybe three to one still would have been okay, but uh, 11 to 10 was just ridiculous. And you have to be able to adapt and racing to the pools. And that was definitely a situation where, I didn't adapt and, you know, I, I just got married to this horse thinking he'd be a certain price and was value and, and wasn't. Now about how many races, like for the maidens do you give until you kind of just like, for me, it's 10. Once a horse has raced 10 times, <laughs> I usually just kind of X them off. If those horses come back and win, I think it's so far and few between that. I just kind of, you know, I can avoid those horses because most of them are usually weaker trainers. Usually if it's someone like, Chad or Todd with an 0 for 10, I usually will see them at like Finger Lakes or Parks or something right. like that. Yeah, uh, th- that's another area I'm, I'm kind of in the minority, I've found. Um, I'm pretty blind to lifetime starts and just take the race, you know, based on their competition. Obviously, you know, if we're dealing with a horse who's showing a, a will not to win, a bunch of seconds or thirds, you know, just missing, giving up a lead late, that kind of figures into the calculus a little differently. But, you know, if, if they're misplaced and getting beat, beat like a drum and then dropping, even if they're 0 for 20, if the numbers fit, you know, relative to the price, then um, I'm more forgiving of a bunch of, of losses I've found than, than most of my colleagues. And I think part of that's just sort of a, you know, being a numbers guy and, and staying true to that, for lack of a better word. I think, and I didn't have the winner Miracle Hill, but I just think that went to a maiden special weight, had raced for only seventy five thousand claiming as the low at the low point on the totem pole. The forty eight and one bullet just really kind of was like maybe the horse all of a sudden just had woken up. Now obviously there's other horses in the race that had been running just as good in the morning, but with a horse that's zero for eight like that, and then you see a pretty quick flashy workout. It's kind of almost like when a horse finally wins a race and they're like, oh, yeah, I should be doing this like every time running by all these horses. Yeah, it was first time gelding and got the bug mm-hmm. and showed a work, good work, as you pointed out. So uh, I, I felt like, that. yeah, that was that was one I missed. Um, I, I would have, you know, if, if I would had been live to the fifth leg and we were having this discussion about how I missed this horse, I'd be a lot more upset about it. So, you know, the sting of being out anyway kind of helps ease the pain that I, I missed this one. But yeah, there were absolutely some things to like. And, and you know, again, that, that's the benefit of, of having these discussions. And I would point back to, I forget it was Thursday or Friday of last week, 
but there was a horse who shipped down from Belterra who won it 20 something to one. And I, I didn't use the horse or like the horse, but you know, that kind of sticks with you and you remember it. And that was, you know, a big reason I was able to be a little more bullish on father G in race two. And, you know, I missed the signs on miracle Hill, but now, you know, with that trainer, I'll be keeping in mind, okay, oh, this horse is gelded. How do his works look before and after? And, oh, he has a bug up. That's new. And, you know, just remembering things like that goes a long way. Now, do you keep almost like the same with your record keeping? Do you keep a journal or such with just stuff for trainers and jockeys as well? Like, like you had just said, like gelding, bug rider has won last time. Now I'm looking for that same angle for the next week or two until like, you know, you guys go to Keeneland or anything like that. Uh, that, that I don't do, which, which I probably should. I mean, cause everything I, I keep is, you know, basically a Google drive spreadsheets, easily searchable, things like that. So that actually, you know, is, is a good idea. Now I have my notes from the day of racing and, you know, when, when a horse turns up, I can go back to that day and, you know, see if, I had written anything interesting, but yeah, I mean, with, with trainers, um, I, I think those type of notes probably are beneficial to keep. So, um, probably should start doing that. And, and those are the type of things that, you know, don't show up in, in the data databases either. Um, I mean, you can query on when uses a bug and things like that, but when you get granular about last start and time off and things like that, um, you know, even, even the, the, the savvy SQL, skills that, that I'm trying to pick up. Don't always get that. So no, no keeping very important for sure. A hundred percent. Now we only have a few minutes left. I know that we had talked, you said how the three-year-olds are in disarray. If you had to make a choice for three-year-old male champion right now, what would it be? Right now it would be maximum security. The division's just, I mean, it's a hold your nose and vote, but I do consider him the Derby winner. Um, you know, at least based on who performed best that day. And he is a two-time grade one winner. Uh, so, so for now he's the leader, but, you know, obviously code of honor beating males in the jockey club gold cup would, that would move him to the head of the class. Any three-year-old who's had any sort of success so far this year, if, if he were to win the breeders cup, that would, you know, be, an, be enough for me. So it, it's an extremely thin, uh, right in of maximum security and pencil. I was really hoping for War of Will to win on Saturday because I've, I've been a fan of that horse for most of the year. I think if Code of Honor can win on Saturday, I think that he'll really be. It's pretty much between him and Maximum Security, but I think that Maximum Security. I know we had the colic last time, but it seemed like he was trying to dodge in the Travers or whatever was trying to go down with that time. And I think that you should really just be trying to. The horses that are on the racetrack should be the ones who should be given the Eclipse Award. I agree. Uh, and I mean, that's why right now, I mean, it's, it's trepidatious for him, the, the lead, but, um, you know, he, he has, he has two grade one wins, which, which no one else has. So, um, but I mean, I agree with you. I mean, a code of honor slam dunk, we are the division with a win on Saturday. So, and, and Mr. Money probably would have been a, a lot of people's choices had he won, but you know, like you said, you, you got to do it. So still waiting for someone to step up in my mind. I really appreciate you coming on, Ed. Thank you for you know spending some time with us. I know that your time is valuable, and I just want to thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us for 45 minutes. Yeah, love it. No, I think uh, it's an essential exercise um, to getting better is, you know, tracking your own stats and looking back at them and then 
looking back at, at races and sort of retrofitting how you could have gotten to the winner, whether you liked them or not going in. So um, glad glad to be a part of it. I would like to thank my special guest, Ed Rosa, for joining me today. This show has been a production of In the Money Media. The president is Peter Thomas Fornatel. The chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And the In the Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. My name is Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.